Most people have only heard the word attachment through emails or through Buddhism, which is why I get confused looks when I talk about attachment. Attachment theory is something invented back in the 50s by John Bowlby. Attachment says, how do you attach to another human being? How does an infant attach to their caregiver? Do they attach securely where they say, my needs will be met and I will be loved and I will be cared for and it will be fair and it will be predictable and it will be understandable? Or am I going to attach insecurely in one of three ways? Insecurely, where it will be unpredictable. I have to navigate it carefully. I have to, I'm in danger. People might abandon me or hurt me. People might not care about me. People might be too selfish. People might blame me. I could have something wrong with me. Something has gone wrong and I am insecurely attached. It is the way a baby attaches to their caregivers, which then carries forth into all your relationships throughout your adult life because you learn that lesson early on about how you expect other people to act and you never question it again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flow Over Fear podcast, where it is our mission to help you to rise above fear and realize your ultimate potential in leadership and life. I'm your host, Adam Hill, and it is my goal to share with you the human side of high performance. My guests share their experience with fear, anxiety, struggle, challenge, and most importantly, despite all of it, how they rose above it to achieve incredible results. So if you're ready to rise up, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Flow Over Fear. I am so glad you're here because today we are going to talk about relationships. Our relationships are the things that can create a lot of fear in our lives, but also a lot of joy. They can sometimes be traumatic or they can be tremendous. So how do we approach them correctly? Well, that's where my guest today comes in. Adam Lane Smith is known as Attachment Adam, and he has worked for years as a licensed uh, psychotherapist and now focuses his specialty as an attachment specialist. Through his new role, Adam helps people to build a new foundation for their life. Fixing attachment issues as their core means, you can transform your relationships and marriage, dating, work, friendships, and family. By showing his clients how to repair their attachment wounds, Adam teaches people to open up to others, to find their voice, receive the love they've always wanted, and live without fear, which is what we are all about here today. So I think this is going to be a great episode. Thanks for joining me, Adam. Thank you for having me here. I'm excited for this one. It's not often I get to talk to another person named Adam. And also, I love teaching people about relationships and attachments. So this is going to be a great conversation. Good. Well, we're already off to a good start having the simple and easy name, Adam. Uh, I know you can probably share in that in that uh, uh, excitement that we both don't have a lot of problems getting our names wrong or other people don't and really simple to write all that good stuff. So it's a good I start. I've never had someone <laughs> ask me how to spell my name. The hardest thing is that people don't with a name like Adam Smith, people don't believe it's my real name. And mm-hmm. then when I decided to publish books, you might remember that there's about 400 million books from a guy named Adam Smith. So you got to go by Adam Lane Smith. That's the origin of using my middle name for all of this, by the way, is because there was this old Scottish dead guy who got in my way first. So yeah, yeah, that that is the problem with having a common name is you getting the websites, getting all that stuff in the books. And, and yeah, we won't talk any economics today, so don't worry. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I, I'm excited. And, and I'd love to kind of, before we jump in, I know that there's a lot of people that are probably listening to this that struggle with their relationships, with attachment issues and all sorts of things like that, because it's a common 
common problem, but I'd love to hear how you kind of got started, how you came to be Attachment Adam, and uh, and why how attachment became the thing for you. Mm-hmm. So, number one thing that you need to know about me is that I grew up with attachment issues. I was attachment issue Adam when I was a little kid, <laughs> when I was a teen, when I was a very young man, mm-hmm. and I grew up in a pretty hard area, pretty hard town, in a pretty bad part of town. And my entire extended family also typically had attachment issues. So not only was the area I was in, the city I was in, the family I was in with attachment, but me too. I grew up thinking that stuff was normal, knowing it was awful and thinking it was normal to be insecure, to be afraid, to not know how to connect to people, to feel like you can't trust anyone, to feel like there might be something wrong with you and you don't know what it is, to be afraid to just relax into your life. I grew up thinking that was normal. And at a certain point, I said, this is awful. I never want to feel this way again. There's got to be some way not to feel this. And through grueling trial and error, I managed to figure it out and fix it in myself and make myself fix it with some friends and Mm -hmm. some people I cared about. And I said, what on earth did I just do? And it was like a lightning moment, like lightning bolt struck my brain kind of moment of this is amazing. What if everybody I grew up with and everybody I knew could also fix this? Mm -hmm. And the only place I knew how to do that was to become a therapist. So I went to school six years, got my master's degree, and then went through three more years of apprenticeship for licensure. So it took nine years to become a therapist here in the United States. Nine years plus 4,000 worked hours plus all kinds of supervision plus 100 grand out of your pocket kind of thing. And I became a therapist. And during therapy school, as I call it, grad school, they taught us something called attachment theory. And they skipped Mm -hmm. over it and said, this is not important to know. You don't need to learn this unless you're going to work with little babies. There's only a couple diagnoses in the book that matter for this. And it's hard to diagnose it anyway. So unless you're testing babies, do not worry about attachment theory. That was what they told us. And I said, okay, well, I guess that's not that thing I was looking for. It kind of sounded pretty good, but I guess not. And so we went out into the world. And I talked to other therapists about the same thing, but attachment was in my head. I started digging. I started learning. Fringe people had studied it. You know, the weirdo types who live under a bridge, therapists who live under a bridge and mm-hmm. uh, no one else will speak to them kind of thing. You know, <laughs> black van therapists kind of, they would talk about attachment, but it was nobody would really talk about it much. And every everything that I learned about it, just told me more and more, this was so important. This Mm -hmm. is at the core of so many of the diagnoses we were treating. When we go through therapy school and they tell us, you know, these are the diagnoses, we don't really know what causes them, but we're going to have to try to somehow fix them with therapy. So just get out there, manage the symptoms, and hopefully your patients will fix themselves. And that's very humanistic therapy kind of approach. And it's just, (laughs) well, micro changes in their life could help. Just manage the symptoms of this disease that they will probably have forever. Yeah. And that was, that's the approach. I've, I've, I've traveled around. I've taught. I've, I've educated other therapists. I teach a lot of healthcare providers now. I've done seminars and I keep hearing the same thing that every healthcare provider just about out there that I've worked with in the United States, Canada and Europe is taught that attachment theory doesn't matter unless you're working with little babies. And even then it's barely going to be anything. Just work on, work on the diagnoses. Mm-hmm. And so as I studied attachment, it became so apparent that this was the core of so many problems. This is the reason so many diagnoses are out there. When I treated people and, and when I, when I was working as a licensed therapist for years, I treated people with bipolar disorder, one and two, 
and they would respond to attachment treatment, even if they didn't respond to any other kind of treatment. Oh, wow. And we could get their, their manic episodes down from three a month to one a year. And it was a small, controlled, manageable one that was barely, barely a blip on their daily radar. They'd have to take a day off of work and then just chill at home for a day. Down yeah. from the disabled due to severe manic episodes and hospitalizations when we worked on their attachment. It was an it was phenomenal. And I started teaching other therapists and I started teaching online. And people, when they hear about it, they freak out because it's the missing piece. The research shows that a, ge a generation ago, about 20, 20, 30 years ago, only about 35% of American adults probably had an attachment issue that we were able to figure out. Mm -hmm. But the research shows today is that up to 65% of American adults now most likely have an attachment issue. And it's getting worse as the generations go on. And, yeah. and this was this was my light bulb moment of this is my life. This is my focus. So there are people online who sort of teach attachment, but there was no one willing to go all in and say, this is the thing, guys. This is what we need to fix. Yeah. So I have pioneered it as a specialty. I have made it my life's work because I know it is this important. And I keep hearing from people, thousands and thousands of people all over the world saying, this is the piece I've been missing. I've been through five other therapists and none of them could help me. You <laughs> finally told me the piece that I know has been missing. So I know well, that this is it. Well, this is fascinating. And, and thank you for sharing all of that, because that just like dinged a lot of light bulbs in in my head of, of just different areas or different, you know, situations I've been in that, that, well, maybe that's something, you know, to, to lean into. And, you know, it so that 65% of people who have attachment issues, is that just because we're learning about it now? Or is that because it's actually just been growing? It's because it's been growing. So the research yeah. I've been doing over the last hundred years or so since World War I here in the mm -hmm. West, our generational attachment has got worse and worse and worse. We lost a generation just about during during um, World War I. They, they, yeah. they called them the silent when they came home, if they came home. They were the silent generation, right? They were a right. mess. They, the, the broken generation, the lost generation. Shell shock was what it was called back then. They didn't even know what PTSD was. Um, but just men checking out, I'm thinking of back during that time, you have um, Tennessee Williams writing plays about men just destroying their lives, walking out on their families because there's no purpose. They mm -hmm. want to die. They just give up through alcoholism. You had all kinds of horrible crash. Then you had the roaring 20s and you had let's forget our problems. Let's escape and, out, and everything else, everything else. Then you had the terrible economic crash and then you had family mm -hmm. farms lost. You have the conversion of most Americans and, and, and Canadians at that point are living in cities instead of farms because you have the Dust Bowl, you have the Great Depression, you have the absolute destruction of the family village, the family neighborhood, the family farm, um, <laughs> shoved into cities, shoved into factory jobs, fa fa families separated um, instead of generational connections where people would catch you and help you and bond with you if something went wrong. No, you were shoved into these these awful little urban conditions with nobody, and mom was worked to death. And they invented mm -hmm. around the 40s and 50s, they invented Valium to give to mom. 
was a little hel- little pill. It was called Mom's Little Helper because yeah. women were separated now from the rest of the women in their family. So every woman became the sole servant of her household and expected to carry every burden in the entire household. And men became the sole breadwinner to feed everybody by working 16 to 18 hour days. And that was that was it. So the greatest mm-hmm. generation came along. They fought the Nazis. They survived the Dust Bowl. They did all these awful things. And, and the silent generation and the greatest generation survived and fought. And then you gave, gave birth to the baby boom. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, most of you know, some baby boomers got it. Most did, many did not. Of my parents barely managed to survive. So keeping us alive is how they show us love, but they don't tell us they love us. They're not soft. They're not gentle. They don't have talks with me. They don't share with me. They don't teach me much. It's I'm going to work 18 hours a week, six days, 18 hours a day, six days a week, and barely be here on Sunday. And that's how I love you. Half of boomers got it. Half of them didn't, roughly in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And they're now tripling the divorce rates in their 70s and 80s, continuing to get divorced in their 80s and just tearing it apart because so many of them learned love is not enough. No one will ever love me. So screw everyone else. And they they either split and became very insecure within themselves and approval seeking. A A lot of boomer moms were this way or very avoidant and disconnected from relationships. And then they would show love through those other mechanisms, but then control you through them. More of an avoidant attachment kind of style Mm -hmm. father. And that gave birth to the Generation Y and Generation X, who basically have lived like deer in headlights their entire life since birth. And the boomers hated them because they just sat there like a lump being scared all the time. So then the boomers got divorced. Then their second marriage, they had the millennials that they said, we will make these kids tougher, more like us, not like our first batch of kids who are failures. So they set up their second batch of family and the millennials and, and boomers hate each other. But the millennials have never seen a functioning family system ever because the grandparents were dead by that time. So the millennials have no comprehension of what a healthy family system looks like. And they're part of a second marriage and that, that gets divorced and a third marriage. So they have no comprehension of a working family or a working marriage or a working anything. And now you have generation, what is it, Z and generation alpha have come along. They're in the, the ruins of a greater civilization at this point with no model for a functioning family, no model for functioning relationships. They actually show that all of the um, hookup culture and everything is down. Sex is down. Unmarried sex is down. Marriage rates are down. Divorce rates are down, but only because people aren't getting married and tons mm-hmm. of people aren't even having sex. They're just living alone in a little apartment free from the world, feeling like they have freedom from people looking at them because Mm. they're so petrified of other human beings. They don't know how to bond. They don't know how to get love. They don't think they're worthy of love. They don't believe other people are capable of love. They don't know how to open up. They don't know how to make friends. They don't know how to do any of that. The research now shows that 30% of millennials, age 24 to 42, every single day are chronically, crushingly alone, agonizingly alone, not just a little bit, Every single day, horribly alone. 30%. Hmm. 30%. That's That's the attachment issues are getting worse. They're getting so much worse. And corporations come along and they have escapist entertainment and they have dopamine binges and they're not the ones driving the problem, but they are definitely vultures circling around, enabling the problem and then making the problem much worse. Why? Why would you go home to your family and fix problems if you, if you didn't have to, if you could be in an apartment with Netflix, with, with Mountain Dew bottles, chugging them down and energy drinks, chugging them down, playing video games, watching porn. Why would you ever leave your, your apartment, your little pod, if you your pleasure pod, if you will, if you never, ever have to, if the outside world is scary and you've never seen a functioning relationship before in your life? Why would yeah. you leave? Yeah. That's where we're at now. 
That's why the wow. suicide rates up and the drug rates are up and everything is up. And the bad yeah. things are up. That's why. That's what we're Addiction's going through right up. now. Yeah. Fears up. Yeah. It's it's that's uh that's that's such a powerful uh summary of of where we've come from and kind of where we're going. And can you help us to understand kind of what what you mean by attachment there? So are mm-hmm. we looking to to find attachment? Are we looking to avoid attachment? What's the what's the goal? Good question. There? Most yeah. people have only heard the word attachment through emails or through Buddhism, which is why <laughs> I get confused looks when I talk about attachment. Attachment theory yeah. is something invented back in the fifties by John Bowlby. Mm-hmm. Um, attachment says, how do you attach to another human being? How does an infant attach to their caregiver? Do they attach securely, where they say, my needs will be met, and I will be loved, and I will be cared for, and it will be fair, and it will be predictable, and it will be understandable. Or am I going to attach insecurely in one of three ways? Insecurely, where it will be unpredictable. I have to navigate it carefully. I have to, I'm in danger. People might abandon me or hurt me. People mm-hmm. might not care about me. People might be too selfish. People might blame me. I could have something wrong with me. Something has gone wrong and I am insecurely attached. It is the way a baby attaches to their caregivers, which then carries forth into all your relationships throughout your adult life because you learn that lesson early on about how you expect other people to act and you never question it again. Mm-hmm. Wow. Gotcha. So that, that's, um, so as far, so we're looking for healthy attachment. I mean, yes. so attachment could be bad, it could be unhealthy or healthy. Mm-hmm. And in your own life, so you mentioned that, you know, you grew up as kind of uh, unhealthy attachment or attachment issue, Adam. Mm-hmm. So how, how did you, how did you see the light? How did you change? What, what did that look like? What did that transformation look like for you? For me, I've always been fascinated by systems and how things work. I always wanted to know why is it the way it is? Why is it working like that? Why isn't it working? And I Mm -hmm. looked around and a little light bulb went off in my brain when I said, I believed in evolution at the time, and I still do to a large extent. And I I was looking around thinking evolution says the best adaptation is going to keep the survival of the fittest. And I looked around and said, how is this the best family dynamic that our species could have evolved? How does this make sense to be this isolated, alone, crushingly miserable? Why are teen suicide and depression rates up right now? 11 year olds are committing suicide at an astounding rate we've never seen before. Pediatricians are trying to sound the alarm. No one's much listening to it, but 11 year old suicide rates are up. If you can imagine that, how -hmm. can this be a good evolutionary adaptation? How could we work like this? This doesn't seem right. And I said, there's got to be another way that we can exist that is actually in line with our biology. So I looked and 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 through the research, what I found was this concept that pain is nothing more than information, that you're in a non-optimized state. If you're in pain, if you're in emotional pain or physical pain, there's a way of getting to be where you are not in pain anymore. So if I said, if we're all in emotional and physical and mental pain, what's the state that wouldn't be pain? Well, I look back at hunter-gatherer societies, right? So the research shows that Homo sapiens have been on this planet for about 200 to 300,000 years. We had the Neolithic Revolution about 12,000 years ago where we realized, hey, if I eat seeds and poop them out, then I mm-hmm. come back, then there's, there's plants there. I could plant crops. I could build a village. So for the majority of our human species on this planet, our time, we were hunter-gatherers. What was that like? Well, 
survival of the fittest meant actual harmony in your family, caring about each other. The research shows they didn't have harsh, brutal um, structural dynamics and hierarchies quite like we do now of I will beat the crap out of you and sue you and put you in prison. It was okay. Let me work with you. Let me work with you on this. Let's work in good faith. Let's solve the problems, right? The tyrants got ousted and the weak leaders also got ousted. And it was <laughs> people who cared and led by by care, by love, by by strength. But by mm -hmm. but by actually nurturing human beings and nurturing the relationships around them and our relationships mattered and we had very little privacy. So if something went wrong, someone else would catch it. Well, how do we act now? Well, you know, it's popular to say every father on earth has always beaten every child he's owned and and always molested his daughters and fathers are horrible. Well, no, wait a minute. What man do I know now who actually would want to do that? Well, none. They would right. literally give their blood and organs and their life for their child. Okay, well, where does that come in? So I started doing all the research and all the chemicals back this up. All the chemicals in your brain and everything backs this up is that when your relationships are healthy, when you are open with other people, when you are trusted, when you have no secrets – when you trust them, when you feel that your needs are going to be met, when you have some power in your life, in your relationships, like the power to stop your pain, the power to affect some change, the power to help other people, when you have that bonding and that connection, especially with about three people, the, it, seems to, it seems to indicate about three people, when you have that connection, your brain says, I'm safe. I don't have hmm. to earn approval. I don't have to run frantically from moment to moment. I'm not going to fall down and die. I'm not going to get sick and die. People will care for me. I will care for them. I have a purpose. I have a connection. I have a family to give to. I have a legacy to build and help. It, when we have good human connection, everything gets better. Our biology is designed around it. Our biology is designed to suffer and die if we feel alienated and to thrive if we feel loved and accepted. And that's yeah. attachment. Yeah. If people are listening to this and they're wretchedly miserable, look to your relationships right now. So how did I figure out how to do that? I started testing with the people in my life. I said, I am horribly miserable. Hi, I'm Adam and I'm miserable in yeah. life because I have all these secrets. And I think are bad about me, right? I was smoking two packs a day of cigarettes. I didn't want anyone to know. Of course, you smell like cigarettes. Everybody knows. Right. I was, you know, I was drinking alcohol at the time. I was doing mm -hmm. this. I was doing that. And I was running all, and I had things I thought might be wrong with me. I suspected something was wrong with me. I had anxious attachment. I mm -hmm. didn't know what it was. I just thought I was unlovable. And when I opened up and told other people that, two things happened. Number one, they said, well, I don't see anything unlovable, but thanks for telling me. I'm glad you trust me. And I went, oh, I'm not unlovable. You see everything, like, like, right? You see everything, right? What about this? What about this mole I have? Is this unlovable? Like, right. show them everything and test it. It's called reality testing. Tested through reality and found out, no, I'm not unlovable. I'm mm -hmm. actually not. Then when you have two or three people, you can either that see you and say that you can either say you're all liars or you're all idiots or I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. One person yeah. you can write off. Two people, maybe three people. You start to realize it's you, that you're wrong. And you start to overwrite your brain. Then you say, shoot, I don't have to be afraid anymore. But here's yeah. the second thing that happened is when I started telling people how I felt, they said, me too. I didn't know anyone else in the world felt that way. Ah, I didn't, know, I didn't know anyone else. Yeah. yeah. Well, people, yeah. When people hear it, they freak out. So there's mm -hmm. two kinds of people that hear this message. One is people who are primarily what we call the anxious attachment style. These are the approval seekers, the ones who turn inward and say, I am the problem. It's mm -hmm. not that nobody else has anxiety. It's that they are anxiously attached because they're fearful all the time of being abandoned. 
They think that they don't deserve love, so they'll be abandoned, so they have to earn approval so people will stay with them. And their adult relationships, this is nice guys, this is girls who sleep with you on the first date because they think that's all they have to offer, and if they ever say no, that you're going to abandon them, and they'll, you'll tell them that they're garbage. This is women who put up with endless affairs and mistreatment in their relationships for 20 years. This is guys who try to earn their wife's approval through chores, they call it chore play, right, of trying to get right. her in the mood by, by vacuuming the living room. <laughs> Um, and then they, but then nice people, nice guys, nice girls get resentful when they do 10 nice things for you and you don't reciprocate. They get mm -hmm. resentful that you didn't figure out their, their needs and meet them over the, over the years, they get resentful and yeah. it's not fair to the other people either. And then there's yeah. avoidant people. They, the, the anxious people are like, <gasps> they hear this and they say, oh, thank God, there's a reason I could, I could get fixed. Oh, please fix me. And they rush into my door begging for anything. I show them my book, Slaying Your Fear, right up there. Yep. Say, read this book. It will fix you. Right? My attachment boot camp course. Watch this course. It will fix you. And they, thank you, Adam. Thank you for telling me it's not my fault. And they're just <laughs> relieved. Then there's the second camp of people who listen. Who are avoidantly attached. They don't believe other people are capable of love. They think everyone is innately selfish. They've been mm. hurt. They've had other people hurt each other. They've watched people be crazy and say, something's wrong with these meat puppets on in this planet. They are crazy. They don't care about each other. Their morals go out the window when they get stressed. I'm not opening up and trusting anybody. So they try to make other people like them through approval-seeking behaviors, but not to prevent being abandoned. It's to manage other people with good feelings so that other people will then act appropriately. Yeah. It's to keep Keep a safe balance between you and other people. And they hear me talk about this and they say, what is this guy smoking? There is nothing on this planet that's going to make me open up to somebody else. People are just going to ruin me. Who? How much is this guy charging per hour right now? Because he's going to scam me. This guy is a scammer. There's no such thing as real love. Then they start thinking about it. And I start describing them like this. And they say... Well, I don't know. We'll see. And they go on my YouTube channel and they scout me out for about three months, sometimes a year. Mm -hmm. And they scout me out to see if I'm a liar. And then they say, well, he's actually kind of consistent. And then they'll email me or contact me. And I'm like, hey, nice to talk to you. How you doing? Well, you know, this and this. Oh, hey, tell me about you. Oh, you sound like you're kind of avoidantly attached. Have you ever heard about that before? Here's some right. information on it. And then, I'll, uh, then they'll run away because they've exposed themselves to run away for about two or three months and escape from me. So they don't have to, because they're afraid of, of being, being seen and being heard. Mm -hmm. Then they'll sneak back in. Hey, I'm sorry. It's been a couple months since I talked to you. Yeah, hey, it's okay. You're avoidant. I get it. It's all good, man. Yeah. And I talked to them and then they, they find one human being they can trust. And then they want to learn, but they must believe first that it's even possible to have love in this life. Most mm -hmm. that's the problem. Most of them don't believe it's possible. It's harder to fix that just because it takes longer. But sure. once you once you show them that love is possible, they only have to find a couple people to open up to, and it changes their entire world. Believing yeah. is the hardest part for them. The anxious person is all too happy to believe that it may not be them. So everybody right. listening to this, if you've been divided into one of those two camps, I see you. I hear you. Yes, I have been there. <laughs> I've been watching you through cameras your entire life. Um, no, this, this can be fixed. Take yeah, heart it, in that, that this can be fixed. And that's, that's, uh, that's big. Hey, everyone. I interrupt this program to introduce you to an amazing adventure. Do you want to embrace fear and get clarity and conviction on your goals? How would you like to join me in an epic Colorado adventure where we will hike a famed 14,000-foot peak, camp under the stars, mastermind around the campfire, and build lifelong friendships? I'm partnering with Belay Expeditions to create a retreat that will not only rejuvenate your soul, but level up your life. We will get clarity on your three C's dream, create a roadmap to your dreams, 
and build the conviction that you need to pursue them with confidence. Join me at the top of the world, September 14th through the 17th. Visit belayexpeditions.com slash retreats and click on my pretty face to sign up. Space is limited, so sign up now. And I can relate definitely to the uh, anxious attachment side of it where <laughs> I, I did, you know, I, I did feel that way that it was just not not worthy of of love in in that way and that uh um that I was afraid of being abandoned and it wasn't clear to me when I was younger of why that was why that was coming up but yeah. the one thing I want the audience to hear here too is and, and it's a theme that comes up with every guest we've had and here we have an expert on you know relationships and attachment community building that that trusted community around you is so so vital oh, yeah. so vital yeah. So, uh, so that, that, and that's, that's such a big part of it. And, and so you, when you got into that and, and you, you know, you'd mentioned kind of go getting into school and starting to learn about this, this stuff and, and hearing like the attachment stuff kind of pushed under the rug. Ah, you don't want to learn about that. You don't need to learn about that. Yep. Are you finding that that's getting better? Cause I, I, I graduated with a, which a, with a bachelor's degree in psychology. And so mm -hmm. I'm no, by no means an expert, but I remember learning about the sexy stuff. Like, yeah. oh, abnormal psychology. This was in the 90s. And so like, you know, I, I I didn't learn what an anxiety disorder was. We didn't talk about depression. We didn't talk about those things. We didn't talk mm. about attachment. Mm. Is that getting better? Or is it, is it, <laughs> it how's, how's that look today? Or, and, and how are you changing that world? So I've got the DSM-5 right up here. Yeah. And what most people don't realize is when they make, what, what goes into making the diagnostics and statistic manual that says what is disorder, what is a disorder and what is not, is that all the various parts of psychology have to come together. The med mm. providers, the therapists, the researchers, everybody has to come together. And then they build a board of people who are going to define it. And then they fight tooth and nail to figure out which ones are going to be disorders and which ones insurance companies will cover and how much criteria they need to cover. And there yeah. were almost fist fights during that part because the psychology, they, they were, it almost That's split crazy. the field of psychology in half <laughs> wow. in the United States because of some of the major changes they made in DSM-5. So if we tried to get in there and create new disorders that said you are an adult who has this attachment issue, it's at the heart of all your other, your other issues, fix this. Mm -hmm. It would be so hard to get that into the book and get people to acknowledge it. And it's hard to medicate that. It's good yeah. to treat it, but it's hard to medicate it. We have the disease model here in America. We have you have a disease. Here's a pill. Here's some therapy to manage it. You will need therapy throughout the course of your life and probably meds for most of your life. You'll mm -hmm. have relapses. It is an autoimmune disease of the mind. That's how we treat mental health here in America. Instead of you have faulty beliefs about your relationships and it's leading you to be wretchedly miserable. Let's fix those beliefs and everything else starts to get better. Let's just <clears> fix them. And that's not as sexy. You're right. It's not, it's not quite as sexy as the other stuff. You don't get to learn, oh, are they hearing voices? No, well, that's boring. You, right. know, you don't get all the fun. All the fun <laughs> symptoms aren't there. Um, but no, it's, you, and when you got to churn out psychology majors as fast as possible. Like you heard, it's a nine-year process. Mm -hmm. And here in the United States, they're pumping out therapists as fast as they can, and they're still not enough. And they're, they're, some of their trainings are not great in some of the states. I happen to be yeah. licensed in one of the strictest states in the United States. It was brutal, and, and rightly so, to make sure they were pumping out quality. But there were, there were only 3,500 of us for the entire state for my license at all. Wow. With millions and millions and millions and millions of people in the state, there was there's 3,500 um, with my license. That was it. Yeah. Which state so, is that? That was in Minnesota where I was uh, licensed there. Mm -hmm. um, 
There's also three different therapy licenses, more than that actually now. Um, they also have social workers doing therapy now because there's just not enough therapists out there. And everyone goes back to this book of what's the code, what's the number, what's the symptom, slap it on there, tr- manage it through insurance, throw it through insurance, see if they'll actually cover it. And attachment is, is so hard to cover. Is it getting better? Well, with the rise of the internet, it is, right? Mm-hmm. I've got almost 400,000 followers. I blast out attachment information every single day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. I'm talking about attachment all over the internet. On YouTube, I'm on, I'm on TikTok of all places, TikTok. I'm on Instagram, Facebook now. My Facebook blew up from 300 followers to 15,000 followers in just a couple of months because people are hungry for it over there. That's fantastic. Everywhere. Yeah, every, yeah everywhere. Everyone's learning about it. The, mm-hmm. the Atlantic finally ran an article not too long ago about attachment styles and how they can change. And I was cheering when I saw that. But people are still nervous and there's no license out there. I had to give up my therapy license so that I could go teach internationally and coach people because my licensing board says, Adam, if you coach, it mm-hmm. will be treated as therapy and all the rules will apply. Well, I can't do therapy outside of my state. I can't do therapy outside of my nation. So I could only do therapy in one state or that's it. I'd be slapping yeah. fines, all kinds of problems. So I had to give up my license. So I'm a coach. I qualify as a coach now, which mm-hmm. is cool. I get to coach everybody. I love the word. But we need more than that. We need more people focused on attachment as the core of the problem. Because when yeah. I have people come into my coaching, they say, Adam, I've been through five therapists. It's been 20 years. I have spent $30,000. And I don't have much hope that this is going to help me. And mm-hmm. we do in about four to six sessions. We accomplish, we fix the problem in four to six sessions. That's four to six weeks, man. Six yeah. weeks instead yeah. of 20 years. We need more people specializing like this so that they can fix this. We need more people understanding that this can get better. This yeah. can get so much better. It's not managing a disease. It's fixing a problem and everything else after that flows more easily, flows better. Relationships are better. Despair goes down. Drug addictions go down. I've seen porn addictions and drug addictions wiped away. I have worked with people. They come in. They are addicted to heroin. I've had people that come in that just got out of the hospital for suicide attempts. I've got mm-hmm. all kinds of people coming in and extreme sexual trauma cases coming in and I work with them in just a, f- a few sessions. If they're willing to do the work, a few sessions, and it overhauls a lifetime of fear and pain. It's just doing it, man. Yeah. So it's, I just want people to know that it can be fixed. Don't live like that anymore. Don't give up. Don't let the system tell you you have a disease. Just fix the problem and you'll be so much better. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're, and, and walking through that process, uh, um, mm-hmm. you know, cause mm-hmm. you talked about a few things and one of the things that kind of top caught my attention to was, you know, attachment treatment for things like bipolar disorder of, of being able to reduce the amount of things like that. Mm-hmm. So like kind of moving from, from, uh, I guess more of the traditional cases to those more extreme cases, how, if someone walks in with an anxious anxiety, uh, an anxious uh, attachment, uh, or that, that's how they're uh, appearing for you, mm-hmm. how, um, what, what is the process like to get them from, mm-hmm. from feeling that, that, that toxic attachment to that more uh, healthy attachment? Good question. It looks like this. So the first session they come in, we do a deep dive assessment. Mm -hmm. What is your attachment style? How is it presenting? How do you act toward other people? How do you get your needs met? 
How do you lie to people? How do you hide from people? What do you do to make sure you feel safe? What are you doing in your relationships? How are you sabotaging your relationships? How are you sabotaging yourself? Where are you unhappy? And through that, we find the gaps. We find the, the wrong beliefs. We find the lies that they believe. And then mm -hmm. we build a plan immediately. You are going to have to do this. You're going to learn this. And I tell them, you're going to learn this skill. You're going to learn to manage your anxiety so that it's not up at 7 out of 10 every day. It's going to be down at 1 or 2 out of 10. Here's yeah. some techniques to do that. Then you're going to have some key conversations with two to three people in your life. We will identify the right people. I will give you the phrasing to say, but you're going to open up and have the what I call I'm an anxious person speech, where you mm -hmm. go to them and say, you may not know this about me, but you probably do. I'm an anxious person. I try to earn approval from people. I'm always scared that I'm going to mess relationships up. I'm always scared I'm going to be abandoned. And I never have known what to do about it, but I hate it. And I never going to do it again. So I'm yeah. telling you now so that I can actually be honest with you from now on. Is that okay? And can we build that relationship from now on? And it sounds like the stupidest, silliest, most childish thing on earth. And when you say it, you will wish you were dead as you're trying to have the conversation. And then sure. you will have the conversation and be, your heart's beating in your throat. And the other person says, yeah, that's great. I love that. Let's have an honest relationship. Yeah, I kind of knew that about you. I didn't realize it was that bad, but thanks for telling me. Cool. What do you need from me? Or I feel that way sometimes too. Hey, mm -hmm. that's great to hear. Yeah, let's do this. And you say, whoa someone actually accepts me. And you do this with two to three people. That's great. Now you've got to start. It opens the door for more important conversations down the road. This is this is good for anxious attachment and avoidant attachment. Gotcha. You identify the good people in your life who live with consistent values that are good, solid people that you can then trust even reasonably. Then you test after that. Something goes wrong and you call them on it or you ask them for help or you open up to them about how you feel or you have a problem and you open up and ask them for advice and you reveal more and more of yourself to them and risk it a bit by step by step by step. And as you do, every time it rewrites those pathways in your brain that says, no one ever wants to hear from me. No one cares about me. No one loves me. I'm not worth their time. They will abandon me. They will hurt me. They will betray me. Every time you open up to those people, it does that. So eventually you rewrite enough of your brain and those beliefs to say, I don't have to be scared anymore. It's a process called systematic desensitization, mm -hmm. which is a fancy way of saying doing something over and over that your brain is scared of. So you teach your brain it's not scary and it's not dangerous. Mm -hmm. And you do that in a couple of key conversations. And I've seen lives turn around in about three to four weeks of wow. having those conversations for three to four weeks. It's amazing how fast your brain will rewrite itself and say, I'm not worthless. I'm not active. There's not something wrong with me. People aren't evil and horrible on the outside, outside world. People are actually okay. I have a few people I love and a few people I can trust. Maybe I'm not a hundred percent comfortable all the time, but I feel so much better and I'm not scared. Then people can go to work and not be terrified at work and have, think their boss is going to fire them every single day. They can run a business and not say yes, yes, yes to employees or to customers and lose every dollar they make. They can talk to their spouse and a wife can, uh, just ask her husband, hey, I'm really lonely. Can we spend more time together? Can you talk to me more about how you're feeling and what you're thinking so I feel safer because I'll understand how you feel and what you need? The mm -hmm. husband could just say, hi, wife, would you like to have sex? Instead of trying to earn the sex and earn the approval. And he can just say, hey, you know what? I just, I just need some time with you too. Can we just spend some time? It's everybody being on the table verbally on the table and sharing their needs and communicating and being clear and being honest and just giving each other what they need and getting what they need from each other in a circle like that. It sounds idyllic and utopian and that's yeah. not quite, it's not that way, but it's 
the majority of people just able to be honest and just say, hey, I need this. Can you do it? Yep, sure. Hey, I also need this. Can you do that? Yeah, sure. I'll do that for you too. And yeah. you just take care of each other that openly. And when you do that, fear drops to darn near zero. Yeah. Because you don't have to be petrified, paranoid, terrified, watch your back, safeguard yourself all the time because you've got people that care about you. You've got people who tell you if something's wrong. You don't have to play that, that self-defense and that, and that damage control all the time. You just have great relationships that feel good. And then you yeah. have a marriage that lasts because you solve problems way in advance. Then you've got kids who don't get crushingly depressed and use drugs and you, and you know, commit suicide when they're 12 or whatever. You don't have that. Because you raise them with better attachment and better needs and better honesty and better connection. Mm -hmm. It's not about a utopian world. It is about just making it livable for everybody through honesty and through a lack of fear. That's all it is. Yeah. Wow. That's so. Uh, and and then and and so that that's powerful because I mean it's it's something that a lot of people neglect is this idea that they have to they could tell somebody and and build that trust <laughs> with them, right? So how. How do you, but I know there's also, I mean, there's even in marriages, I mean, like there's, there's this idea of rejection though. And I, I grew mm -hmm. up with a big fear of rejection. Like mm -hmm. I didn't ask girls mm -hmm. out or anything like that because I was just afraid of getting rejection. Even, mm -hmm. even to this day, it's hard to, you know, it's hard to ask for something for fear of that rejection, mm -hmm. like, you know, intimate time or whatever it may be. My, um, how, how do you manage that dynamic in a relationship where there is times where somebody might be in the mood, somebody might not be in the mood or, mm -hmm. or, or those kinds of things? How do you manage those boundaries? Mm-hmm. With a gun, you threaten them. No. Um, <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> yeah, no, that's the avoidant answer. Um, sure. No, it's what, what you do is you learn mm -hmm. that sharing your needs with the other person is a gift. If you have somebody who never tells you what they want from you, they expect you to figure it out. If you have someone who only does nice things for you because they're trying to get you to figure out what they need and do and reciprocate. Mm -hmm. If you have someone who never tells you when you do something wrong until it's been three or four months in and then they blow up at you because they've had a bad day and then they expose everything you've ever done wrong and they can't stand it. If you have a person who is never honest with you, you feel unsafe, you feel worried, you feel scared. When you tell somebody point blank or if someone tells you, hey, I like this. Could you do this for me? It's so helpful. Mm -hmm. When you say, hey, you know what? You did this thing, but it's okay. You didn't know. I'm going to tell you right now how to fix it. And this is what I'd rather you do. Could you do this instead? You tell me right up front when they tell you what they do like and say, thank you so much. That was awesome. I appreciate you. Thank you. They don't mm -hmm. treat your gifts or your kindnesses like a burden. They have to pay back. They're just glad. When you have someone who treats you that point blank and that on the table and that clear, it makes your life so much better and so much easier and so much more relaxed. Other mm -hmm. people want the same thing from you. So recognizing you have the power to give that kindness and that safety and stability and pain and, and warmth and, and all of that to the other person, that's a gift. So sharing your needs with the other person is a gift. Mm -hmm. And not doing it is a burden. Not sharing your needs is a burden. People get that wrong. They think not sharing their needs is preventing a burden. No, you're creating one, a big one. Right. So right. sharing your needs is a gift, number one. And number two, then sharing your need and not saying, I demand, and like you feel you are, but saying, hi, you know, I have a need. I have a need. How can we help that? happen? How can we make that happen? You know, I'm lonely lately. I'd really mm -hmm. like to spend time with you. How can we make that happen? 
hey, babe, I'd really like to have some bedroom time with you. How can we make that happen? Right. Well, the wife doesn't have to just say, well, I'll just close my eyes and think of England. No, she should probably <laughs> say, I would love to have more bedroom time with you. But for me to be more in the mood, I really need for us to spend more quality time together outside of the bedroom. When was the last mm -hmm. time we had a date? When was the last time we just sat and talked? When was the last time you rubbed my back and didn't expect something out of it? When was the last time we just walked around the neighborhood holding hands and spent some time together like a couple? Emotional intimacy is usually what women need to get back into the mood. It's, it's usually what it is. When the oxytocin chemical is high, then yeah. her mood is usually pretty high too. It's, it's just kind of how the science of, of the female sex drive tends to work, especially after the first year. Um, talk about those needs that you have and then just say, how can we make this happen? And the mm -hmm. other person will give you their quote unquote price, whatever it might be, probably time together, or just they'll give you a scheduled date. They'll say, hey, not today, but maybe this evening or tonight or tomorrow. And yeah. you just work on it together as a couple. You share your needs and then you meet each other's needs. That's it. If you don't ask, though, it's not that they go away. It's that you get resentful. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, and that's that's kind of where I, I, I see that that challenge is that, you know, some people just might not ask mm -hmm. and other people might just not be interested and there might mm -hmm. be some misalignment there. And so how how do you set the boundaries and or how how do you fix that dynamic uh, of, mm -hmm. of getting that? And it sounds like honesty, but um, but getting to that honesty takes a lot of courage. So that's that's a, a really difficult part. Yeah. It does. Um, so in my attachment boot camp video course that I put mm -hmm. together on my website, adamlanesmith.com, one of the modules in there talks to you about identifying your own needs and then taking those needs and identifying how they fit together with your values and your goals. You don't just have needs that are just out there that you have to stomp your foot and demand to get. They accomplish something. Meeting your needs accomplishes something. If you're in a partnership and a couple or married or whatever, whatever fancy words people use nowadays for, for the thing as old as time itself, whatever relationship you're in there, you should have a goal. It's not so that both of you give each other good feelings till one of you dies, and that one's the winner because now the loser has to live alone. That's not the point of a marriage, and that's not commitment. You're not committing to feelings. You're committing to building something together, a life, a legacy, mm -hmm. something of worth and value. For many people, that's kids or, or adopted kids or a cause or a business or a nonprofit organization, a charity or something in this world that matters to them, building a legacy together. So then... You have to ask yourself, do just starving myself of my needs into the ground help me meet that legacy or does it hurt that legacy? Well, mm -hmm. it would hurt your legacy and no one really wants that to happen. So I got four kids myself. If I, my wife and I are at constant odds, never meeting each other's needs, grinding ourselves into the dirt, miserable all the time, can't communicate. Well, shoot, I'm going to have four kids who grow up and do the same. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want them to do that. I want them to have love. So I have to build that and model that with my wife first. Mm -hmm. Then yeah. sharing your needs becomes part of a legacy. It, it is demanded of you, in fact. Mm. So is it, it? So really, people just if they want to get through these attachment issues, or if they want if they want to make them healthier, and they're already in a relationship, is it safe to say mm -hmm. that they that that the the people that are wanting to take that step should take the lead on it? So being honest first is that a right approach? Mm -mm. 
Mm-mm. No. Oh, okay. No. Because here's what's going to happen. If you jump into the relationship and just bl- bluntly start being frantically honest as much as you can, you are mm-hmm. going to freak out the other person. Because if you have attachment issues in a relationship, odds are good you picked someone else with attachment issues who's never going to get too close to you to see what's wrong with you or to hurt you. Mm-hmm. So avoidant people and anxious people tend to pair up a lot, which is why divorce rates are sky high. Mm-hmm. Um they pair up very, very well and very, then very poorly over time. So if you will jump in and just start being brutally honest, it's going to just freak the other person out because they won't know what's going on. Right. This is why so many couples take my attachment boot camp course together. But first, they start off with some of my YouTube channel videos. They yeah. watch a couple YouTube videos and they learn from me. They read my book. Maybe they take my course. They email me and I say, look, watch a couple of my YouTube videos with your partner. Have you educated them at all about attachment? Do they know what you're going to have? No, no, no. I think I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to jump in and start doing it and see how they respond. Well, that's a disaster. They're only going to respond by freaking out because now you have changed and change scares them. And they're going to try to figure out what you're doing differently and why. And their assumption is going to be bad. It's Mm -hmm. going to be bad. They're going to think you're having an affair or that you're going to get divorced. That's what they're going to think. And they're going to do everything they can not to change and to punish you for changing and to stop the change from happening. So don't do that. And guys will tell me, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, I'll see you in a month. (laughs) And they see me in a month and they say, Adam, it's so much worse. And I said, well, yeah, you scared your wife to death. What do you think was going to happen? So talking with them, hey. You know, I've learned something about myself. I think I have this thing called this attachment issue. You know, I'm insecure. I do this thing where I I hide. I don't share my needs. And I thought that was normal. And I hate it. And I think we do that together. And I hate that. I don't hate you. I just think that we don't share. We don't talk. We don't connect. And it might sound like I'm just, you know, being a hippie here smoking pot. But I really want to share more with you and talk more with you and have a better relationship. And I know it doesn't sound like we can right now, but there's this dude online. He's got a red beard. And he talks all the time about feelings. Can we watch a couple of his videos that I've picked out? And sometimes couples email me and say, pick me a couple of videos. And I say, okay, I'll pick a couple of videos. And watch a couple of videos and tell me what you think. And couples will watch it. And the avoidant partner will say, well, that's stupid. And then they'll think about it. And then that the next day they'll come back and say, well, about what that guy was saying. And then they'll still open up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. And it takes some time. And then they want to learn. And then I say, go take my course together. Watch all seven hours of my video course. And by the end of that, they're, they're learn how to meet their needs and talk about their needs and share and why. And they've learned this is not just me, that there's something wrong here. There's something different. We can change it. It's a mm. process. But you have to get them to go on that journey with you. You can't tie them up and drag them on the journey. Gotcha. And honestly, as you fix, yeah. yeah, honestly, as you fix your attachment together, either you will grow together or it will split you up permanently. It's going to be yeah. one or the other based on if they're willing to do the work or not. Gotcha. And that's uh, that's super helpful because as you see, I got it wrong. And uh, <laughs> that's most people. Yeah. So, mo- mo- so it's a slower, slow drip of, of trying to ease them or, or mm-hmm. get them into willingness rather than giving them the fire hose of this is the new mm-hmm. me. Gotcha. Um, I was watching then, Daniel Tiger with my kids the other day, and they were he was going to the dentist. Yeah, and they said before we do something new, we'll talk about what what, what, what before we do something new, let's talk about what we'll do. That's mm-hmm. what it was. Thank you, Daniel Tiger. Those songs are in my head forever. <laughs> right. Um, talk about what you're going to do different and why, because yeah. then they won't be scared as much. 
They'll be Mm -hmm. scared still, but they'll understand why you're walking in that new direction and they'll bear with you and they'll listen and they'll understand. And then when they try to overreact, they'll stop and go, well, wait a minute. They told me what to expect. Okay. Well, now I know what they're trying to do and they don't have to assume. The problem with it, with attachment problems like this is the assumptions are so wrong. The -hmm. less you can leave them to assume or guess, the the better it's going to be. Gotcha. Excellent. And if, if someone is, is, you know, tr- it, 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 when you're guiding people to try and find those people to have the key conversations with, mm-hmm. what are they, um, what are they looking for in those people? Like, uh, mm-hmm. are they, um, cause you, I, I'd imagine you don't want to give them the fire hose either. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> right? Not yet. Yeah. Right. Here's what you do is you identify your three core values that are most mm-hmm. important to you that you probably violate all the time for the sake of earning approval from other people. Mm-hmm. For me, it's honesty, integrity, and compassion. Those are the three things I have to live by all the time. If I don't, I hate myself. Most mm-hmm. of us who hate ourselves out in this world, it's because we have that honor code built into us, but we violate it all the time because we are scared. Yeah. We need to earn approval. We're afraid we're going to get hurt. So we violate our, our code of beliefs and then we hate ourselves, and it reconfirms for us, oh, I really am the scum of the earth because look at me. I'm a bad person who violates these core things. You pick your core values that are most important to you. Mm-hmm. And then you look for other people who match those core values and live to them when it matters. That tells you who the moral people in this world are that you can actually trust. Mm-hmm. Then you go to them and you say, here's what I'm about to tell you. Here's why. And then you tell them. You give them all the front-loaded information up front instead of what we call trauma dumping. You don't yeah. trauma dump on them about your bad feelings. You say, I'm about to share something painful with you because I want to be close to you and I am also looking for your feedback. So you give them that you give them. And at the end of it, you say, what do you think about this? Can we still be friends? Can we still have a relationship? And would you like to engage in this kind of relationship? So they know exactly what to do. They're not overwhelmed. They're not confused. It's not the fire hose. It's a cup that they can sip out of and then ask you some questions about. Mm -hmm. That's how you hand it to them. That's how you package it up. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. And and for the more extreme examples, like uh, when you mentioned the bipolar, uh, people who might be struggling with other kind of issues, bipolar mm-hmm. or anything like that, is the approach is the approach the same? Is it, do you do you do anything different on those kinds of things? Is it more one? Is it more like a uh, depends on the situation kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Here's what I see with bipolar, and I've had doctors back me up on this. Doctors I've worked mm-hmm. with over the years. When you have attachment issues as a child, really severe ones, especially with abuse, especially with sexual trauma, your brain says there's something wrong with me that everybody else can see or there's something wrong with everybody else that they're unlovable. With bipolar, it's usually self-blame, though. There's something wrong with me everyone else can see. I have to be perfect all the time and never let anyone see my imperfections or I will be ruined and they will hate me and drive me away and everything will be awful. So these are little kids who are perfectionists at coloring, at drawing, at standing little critters up. They are perfectionists at everything. And you don't know why. You're just, oh, how funny. (laughs) No, it's not funny. It's it's ruining their life. And then Mm. they develop generalized anxiety disorder very early because they are chronically anxious all the time because their brain says, I keep screwing up and no one's ever going to help me because I'm not worth helping. So all I can do is be more scared all the time. And it turns up the anxiety, turns up the anxiety, turns up the anxiety. So they live at seven or eight out of 10 anxiety all the time, chronically, Mm -hmm. constantly anxious. Then they hit teenage years and they say, like, I can't do this anymore. So many bad things have happened. People don't like me. I'm never going to fit in. I'm starting to have romantic feelings for other people. Nothing's going to work. No one will ever want me. They crash into depression. Sometimes it 
13, sometimes at 16, sometimes at 18. But mm -hmm. they usually crash into teenage depression. There's the origins of a lot of teenage depression right there. People with bipolar sometimes will go up into panic attacks and freaking out, like massive amounts. But yeah. then starts to happen is their brain says, I am so red line all the time on terror that I can either have either kill myself or I can have seizures or I can release a chemical cocktail that will temporarily turn off my prefrontal cortex the judgment center of my brain that says, I can't ever do anything ever that makes me feel good because it's scary and horrible. I have to constantly be a slave of everyone around me to make them like me and be perfect all the time, even though I know I can't be. So it's always a doomed endeavor. So I'm going to die eventually. Yeah. And it turns off the judgment center of the brain and says, let's just dopamine binge for a while. So they stay up for days. They don't sleep. They do everything fun. They eat and sleep or don't sleep. They don't sleep or don't eat or they have sex or they spend money or they pay or they get a little delusional or they do all kinds of crazy stuff that feels good and then they come out of it and say, oh no, what have I done? And everyone's mad at them or they're in a hospital or they've just wrecked a ton of things. They cheated on their boyfriend with three other dudes and yeah. all kinds of awful stuff that can happen. And the worst part of it is they have revealed to other people that they're unstable and everyone is upset or confused and they go, I have revealed myself to the world. I'm about to be ruined and destroyed. No one will ever love me because they see how bad I am. And they plunge into depression. And then they say, the only thing, only way out of this is to be perfect for the rest of my life. And they try and try and try. And all that does is ratchet up the stress again until it hits a point of either a seizure, suicide, or manic episode, and then crash into another manic episode, and it turns it off again. This is why hmm. fixing the attachment often does what all the lithium and all the other medications often can't do, which is disarm that, that rising cycle and the panic cycle by showing them and helping them understand that people love them. They are not unlovable. They are not garbage, and their life does not have to be run on perfection or death. Hmm. It is not perfection or death. It is be who I am and be loved by a few people. And then I only see them go up into manic episode or hypomanic episodes ever again when they're under extreme stress that they can't control and they have forgotten to go to other people to get help. Then mm -hmm. it's a day or so of hypomanic, low-level manic where they can't sleep, they're stressed out, they're driving themselves crazy, and then they say, oh, wait, I was supposed to talk to someone to get help. Okay. Yeah. And then they go do it. And that's what that's the rising cycle I have seen of fixing bipolar disorder through attachment issues. Not I'm not saying never take medication for it, but I am saying that is the cycle I have seen when I've worked with people who have bipolar issues in the past. Well, wow. that's that's the mechanism and that's how it all fits together. And very few people know that pattern right there. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's powerful. And, and it's a good reminder, too, that, ladies and gentlemen, this is just a podcast and a conversation with someone who is an expert. So don't don't use this as the be all end all of medical advice. Get the medical <laughs> treatment. Reach out to Adam. Get the get the right kind of treatment to, to get this done. But but <laughs> uh, um, but yes, this it's it's hugely valuable. And it shows that that uh, that there's that there's a path for people to find help and find treatment. And that's so important now. And, um, and you're doing such good work. You've even got, you've got a few books out, um, and, uh, and you have this, uh, uh, this attachment boot camp that you have that you kind of mentioned earlier. Uh, can you share a little bit about that and how people can access it? Yeah. So I compiled my 15 years of education, training, and experience into mm -hmm. one video course that you can watch over and over again, or you can watch it with your spouse, your partner, you can watch it with your kids, and you watch it. And as you watch it, the information in it changes you. There are activities in it to do. There are quizzes for comprehension, but it changes you as you watch it. And if you watch it with somebody, it provokes conversations that you must 
have. It tells you step by step exactly how to fix these attachment issues so that you get better relationships and stop being tormented by fear. That's what that course is designed to do. That's incredible. And uh, people can find that at adamlanesmith.com. Is that correct? That's right. Everything's uh, on there. Awesome. So, uh, Ladies and gentlemen, um, Adam can be found at adamlanesmith.com. He drops so much value on his social channels as well and on YouTube. So please, please look him up there. Adam, anywhere else, uh, anybody can find you that you'd like to send people to? Oh, I'm everywhere now. If you type Adam Lane Smith attachment, you will find me everywhere. Best place right now, though, is YouTube. It's really blowing up. I put, uh, I've got something like 300 YouTube videos over there right now for people. So if you're hungry for more information, go binge me on YouTube. I'm Adam Lane Smith over over on YouTube. You'll find me over there. And Instagram is blowing up right now, too. I've got a lot of high visual carousels and reels and stuff there at Attachment Adam. That's a good place. And you can DM me there if you want to contact me. Instagram DMs is one of the best ways. That's fantastic. This So there's been so much value in this episode, Adam. Thank you so much for all of that. I know we could go on in a number of different directions just to, to pick your brain. Um, and I hope we get that chance again. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh uh, I, I thank you so much for being here and uh, to everyone else out there. Thanks for joining us. Uh, seek out Adam online and on the socials. And until next time, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Flow Over Fear podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. I will be so grateful if you do. And I'll look forward to bringing you more value in our next episode. I'll see you then.